Welcome to this podcast from the British Academy, bringing you the latest research and ideas from the humanities and social sciences. To find out more, please visit britishacademy.ac.uk. Hello, everybody. Welcome. My name is Tamar Garb, and I'm delighted to welcome you here at this lecture, which forms part of the Academy's series on global perspectives. In this series, the Academy invites distinguished international scholars to the United Kingdom to share their knowledge and expertise on topics of global interest and concern. So this series was launched in 2014. The events are possible through the generous support of a foundation called the S.D. Lee Fund, and it's become a really important and interesting forum for inviting speakers to think about global politics and the challenges that we face. And previous incumbents have included Noam Chomsky and Mahmoud Mamdani. Tonight, it's the first time, believe it or not, in its four or five year history that we have a woman speaker, I think, oddly enough. So it gives me great pleasure on many fronts. So tonight's lecture is going to be given by Françoise Vergès, as you know, and I'm extraordinarily honoured to preside over it. I've long admired her work and her unique combination of academic rigour and political activism, and I look forward with great anticipation to hear what she has to say tonight. Some of you will know quite a lot, I'm sure, about Françoise Vergès, but for those of you who don't, I want to give you a little bit of background, because it is an extraordinary biography and an extraordinary trajectory. Françoise Vergès grew up in an anti-colonial feminist and communist family in the French overseas department of Reunion Island, where she became aware from very, very early on of state repression and racism. In fact, we were talking a little earlier and Françoise was telling me that already as a teenager, she was involved in advocacy and in speech making that caused something of a stir in the environment which she inhabited. She received her high school degree in Algeria and she moved to France in the mid-1970s. After she left university, she became an activist against French neocolonial politics, working against racism, working in relation to prisons and psychiatry, thinking about and working against imperialist wars. She became an advocate for Palestinian rights. She joined various feminist groups, including the very famous psychoanalysis and politics. She became a journalist for Des Femmes en Mouvement and an editor for the publishing house Des Femmes, for which she travelled to countries under dictatorships or at war to collect women's testimonies. For those of us involved in scholarship in France in the 1980s, Des Femmes was a very, very important publishing environment and the bookshops that stocked their books and their bookshop indeed became a kind of sanctuary for many feminists working at the time. So it's a very unusual academic pedigree. Françoise left France in 1983 She worked as an illegal for two years at small jobs in Southern California. She lived in Mexico, waiting for her green card, living at that point a very precarious life, and then returned to the USA, where she went to university and where she did both her undergraduate degree at San Diego State University and her PhD at Berkeley. 
So her education was in the US, but the biography is a truly global one. And this continues after she graduated from Berkeley. She returns to France in 95, and soon afterwards she becomes employed here in the United Kingdom. She worked at the University of Sussex from 1996 to 2000, and then at Goldsmiths College from 2000 to 2007. So she's lived and worked and studied and been an activist in so many different environments and different geopolitical locations. In 2007, she became the head of the scientific and cultural program of a projected museum, a very interesting project, projected for Reunion Island, where she proposed a museum without objects. But the project was crushed in 2010 through a change of power at the time. And perhaps in our conversations later, she could tell us a little bit more about that. As the president of the National Committee for the Memories of Slave Trade, Slavery and Their Abolition in France in 2008 to 2012, she created exhibitions, she organized commemorations, and she's now the president of a collective called Decolonizing the Arts in France, which holds a monthly seminar. She's long been working with artists, including Isaac Julian, who's here with us this evening, Yinka Shanibari, Kada Atia, amongst others. And since 2015, she's been curating L'Atelier, an annual performance with 20 to 30 artists of colour in Paris. She's also been involved in making films and as an advisor to the Melon Africa Asia programme, Humanities Across Borders. Most of us will know her work not only through these activities, but through the extraordinary books that she has published. Formative and important for my work have been Abolir l'esclavage, in utopie coloniale, which was published in 2001, and much more recently, Le ventre des femmes, The Womb of Women, Capitalism, Racialization, Feminism. I'm told it's soon to come out in English, but at the moment it exists in French and was published in 2017. Her forthcoming book, Feminisme Decolonial, will be published by La Fabrique in Paris in February, and we hope it will be translated very, very soon. Tonight, she's going to talk on material from this book, looking at the way in which the late 20th century feminist project as mainstreamed in Europe over the past decades has provided the ideological backstory for Islamophobia and new forms of racialized thinking and racism. In fact, as Vergès will show, it's a story not only of betrayal of women of colour, but also one of feminist collusion with neoliberal and racialized capitalism. But I'm going to leave it to her to make her arguments and to show how this operates, and then invite you afterwards all to participate in discussion and Q&A. It's with great pleasure that I invite you, Françoise, to the podium. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you very much for being here. So my talk tonight, I will start, uh, you know, to retrace what led me to uh, clarify, to want to clarify what I mean by decolonial feminism. And also explaining what I think it is important to retrace that history before giving a definition of decolonial feminism. And why I think also, uh, finally, why women in the cleaning caring industry constitute a terror for colonial feminist action and thinking today. So different thread led me to think about, uh, you know, what I'm going to talk tonight. Why, when and how did we move from women's liberation to women's right? 
to feminine nationalism, but also the question of liberation. It was called women's liberation movement. And of course, within the idea of national liberation movement at the time, it was about a process, a project, and not about women's right. It was not contained within the vocabulary of rights. I wanted to also to understand the incredible counteroffensive today to the massive emergence of women's movement in the global south, in Argentina, in Brazil, in India, in South Africa, in Palestine, and elsewhere. I mean, what I see as this alliance between authoritarian regime and neoliberalism worldwide and their impact on women's lives. And finally, also the place given at the beginning of 2018 to a letter which was signed by Catherine Deneuve and other very well-known women in which they defended, I quote, a freedom to both of us as indispensable to sexual freedom, which made front page for many days and led to a back and forth controversy, do we agree, don't we agree, with, you know, being grabbed in the subway, whatever versus a very marginal place given at the time to the victory of hundreds of black and brown women who cleaned the gardener and had been on strike for more than a month to ask for better working condition and the end of sexual harassment on the job. It was, I thought, symptomatic that white women could ask for the freedom of being bothered and be as a center of attention because black and brown women were cleaning their world and making it comfortable and safe for them to be bothered. The work on decolonial feminism meant also clarifying the content on my own, you know, activism as a, you know, anti-racist and feminist and pursuing the analysis I made in my 2017 book, The Woman's Womb, that Tamar, you know, quoted, in which I explore why Western feminism had, in the struggle for contraception and abortion rights, ignore the racial policy of their own state and how then they contributed to or supported campaign on birth control that serve Western imperialist interest. The book starts with an incident in June 1917 in Réunion Island that led to the discovery that 7,000 to 8,000 Réunionnaise poor women of color had been aborted and sterilized every year since the mid-1960s without their consent in a local clinic and that the white French doctor who had performed the surgery had embezzled millions of francs. The inquiries showed also that the pill was widely distributed and other invasive forms of contraception were imposed on poor women of color, while contraception was heavily endured in France and abortion was still a crime. From this narrative about racial abuse of power in the 1970s, I retrace the long history of the colonial state of intervention on in the black woman's womb during the slave trade, slavery, and post-slavery imperialism, and after World War II, when international institutions and Western states blamed the poverty and underdevelopment of what we call then the third world upon women of color. France was then also undergoing social and cultural transformation after 1968, but also following 1962, the Algerian independence, which in French consciousness and public opinion marked the end of colonialism. When the French feminists chose to ignore the long history of state racial politics among a woman's rationalized womb, while making the liberalization of contraception and abortion their first and important struggle, they ended up defending the rights of white women. I concluded with a call for the repolitization of feminist struggle, analyzing again the shift from liberation to women's rights, you know, to this emergent of what Sarah Faris has called feminationalism 
and also what we see as corporate feminism, how these have renationalized and recenter on civilizational values the women's struggle for liberation. I was bringing a reminder, women's liberation movement did not mean equality winners men in a system of racial capitalism, but the fight against racism, capitalism and imperialism and for social justice. In our current time, the new politic of dispossession, apartheid and colonization with increasing inequalities and the new murderous policies of capitalism, feminism must be decolonial and radically anti-racist. In recent years in France, a revision of the feminist narrative, a critical reading of its whitening, of the ignorance of the colonial racial question and its complicity with imperialism yesterday and today, has led to the republication of essay, the creation of non-mixed group and counter among racialized French outside of the West guys. Police violence and unpunished murders of young black Arab men has been, you know, denounced, as well as Islamophobic attacks against men or women, and the later quite often too often marginalized by your focus on the attack against men. So all this, you know, shows that white feminism is cannot longer pretend universal, but you know it's not that done. But the book led me to you know, question again the role of feminists in Europe and Islamophobia. And my hypothesis was that French feminists had led the way. There was also a reason I noticed a lack of historical knowledge among non-white feminist activists, the young feminist activists who thought that women's liberation movement was just about miniskirt and sexual liberation. And uh, the fact also that capital and the state had quite often disappeared from the analysis. So all this make me also I wanted to understand. And finally, also this question of care and clean industry. So my first point is, why did the French women's liberation movement ignore the racial politics of the state? As I say, 1962 was really perceived at the end of colonialism and the end of shame. Even, you know, people who were against the war in Algeria were kind of ashamed that the Republic has done that, you know, tortured. And finally, it was like kind of a relief, you know, let's close the chapter. And the cartography of France was now European, and therefore entire territories and society disappeared. I was on a struggle, New Caledonia, the, the Pacific Island, Martinique, Guadeloupe, Guyana, Reunion, Mayotte, for instance, but also racialized people in France. Feminists from then on would say nothing or very little about French military intervention in Africa, nuclear tests in the Pacific, pollution in the anti or racial capitalism. Women's struggle became really about protecting women from men's abuse, not about capitalism and imperialism. If racism was denounced in the 1917 text that I reread, it was about racism in the USA or the victimization of migrant workers. How the presence of this worker made the life of French women, French feminist women, more comfortable was not considered. The way in which the colony had shaped Europe, its laws, its art, its culture, its philosophy, and its feminism was ignored. The fact of presenting oneself as being victim of male domination apparently innocented French women from the crime of slavery and colonialism. Feminists we know had long compared the condition to the condition of slave and colonized, erasing the racial dimension. This fabrication of innocence was central to the development of European feminism. It preserved its blind spot to what Amy Cesar called the shock in return. The fact that the racist ideology that supported slave trade, slavery, colonialism, imperialism would come back inevitably, contaminating European society, even its progressive forces. 
analysis that says they are pursued in his letter of resignation to the French Communist Party in 1956 when he criticized the notion of the universal class and what he called fraternalism. Brotherhood, yes, as long as a white man is a big brother. How this ideology had contaminated feminism, the question was not raised. The division into humanity, of humanity into lives that matter and lives that do not matter was not analyzed by most European feminists. And we have to remember that very few feminists were radically against colonization. The situation in French post-colony after 1962 was in most, you know, most of the eyes of feminists, French feminists, I read, we read all the texts because I was part of that movement, the result of the remnant of the colonialism, not the symptom of a continuous organization of racial inequality. And despite the strong opposition within the women's sleep itself, the law became the way to resolve discrimination and punish crime, producing soon a punitive feminism and a focus on legal measure to ensure gender equality. So how did it happen, this slow but persistent move to this form of women's rights? The late 1970s, we know, saw a very series of important events. The defeat of the USA in Vietnam, the Iranian revolution, the massive entry of women in the labor market, in the industry of care and cleaning, the moment or at a moment when the value of labor was decreasing following a structural adjustment program. In the early 1980s, the woman started to condition its aid agreement of acceptance of package economic reform and the remaking of state services, increasing dependency and poverty and effectively targeting women. But the late 1980s, a series of ideological moves were their work. In France itself, women who had been active in anti-colonialism and thus could not be accused of being pre-colonial changed their narrative about national liberation movement. They argued that decolonization had betrayed women and that women had been sent back to the kitchen. Algeria was at the center of this revisionism. Women were veiled again, Islam was back. A lot of testimonies were published, films were produced in which Muslim women had only first name, Fatima, books against female mutilation, forced marriage was published and by feminists with preface and became bestseller. In 1981, still in France, the institutionalization of feminism, the pacification through integration in the institution, helped the turn to respectability and call for gender equality within capitalism. The women from the Algerian movement who were picked as effectively representing was Jamila Bupasha and not Jamila Bouyred, who had never accepted the pacification. It was important to see who was finally accepted and picked up to enter the pantheon. The West became the natural repository of women's rights, inseparable from Western liberal democracy. The kind of discourse that decolonization had finally brought dictatorship, censorship, corruption, incapacity to govern, and women oppression became quite widely shared. And that revolution had brought gulag, dictatorship, censorship, bad economy, and terror. And in that moment, 1989 was a turning point. Or rather, it offered to mainstream feminism an opportunity to win again an important place in the deployment of the new civilizing mission, the clash of civilization, the war against terror, that is, the war against Islam. I do not think that feminists who declared the war on Islam in 1989 predicted the success of their move, but they were relentless in France, sending open letters to members of the government, getting invited to the media, organizing wide campaigns against backward culture, and soon they won the place they desired, 
being the provider of ideological rhetoric to neoliberal politics. They offer a vocabulary and argument around women's rights, providing a writer's base for imperialism. Remember also that in 1999, in February, it was a fatwa against Salman Rushdie, which also triggered a lot of movement in Europe. In June, in China, the massacre of students at Tiananmen. Here. In July, it was also a very important moment, the bicentennial of the French Revolution. François Furet had come, you know, had become very important. In 1978, he had already said the revolution is finished. It was human right and not social justice and not social liberation anymore. And his criticism was taken more seriously than attack from conservative on the revolution because it was perceived as being on the left. Indeed, the ideological move of the late 1980s was made possible by people with perfect credential. They were identified being on the left by the media and public opinion, giving more credence to their declaration in defense of neoliberalism. And the same would be true for feminists. On the 14th of July on the Champs-Élysées, a magnificent spectacle presented to the crowd and to the leader of the seven richest countries of the world, at the time the G7, invited by the socialist president François Mitterrand, what was called the planetary tribe. Each tribe marched through the Champs-Élysées with its own culturally identified element. Africans were half-naked and, you know, with drums. Soviet soldiers were marching under fake snow. British were marching under the rain, you know. And all this, this was a planetary tribe arriving at the Place de la Concorde. On the same day, at the Mutualité, which, is, you know, which has been the place for a lot of anti-imperialist meetings and feminist meetings in the 60s, 70s. The International League for the Right and Liberation of People had organized a meeting of the representative of the seven poorest countries of the world. It was set up under the spirit of the 1976 Alger Declaration of People's Rights, which stated, we live at a time of great hopes and deep despair, a time of conflict and contradiction, a time when liberation struggle have succeeded in arousing the people of the world against the domestic and international structure of imperialism and in overturning colonial system. But this is also a time of frustration and defeat as new forms of imperialism evolve to oppress and exploit the people of the world. Imperialism using vicious methods with the complicity of government that has itself often installed continue to dominate part of the world. We should think that it was written today. The first of the article of the manifesto they, they wrote then on the 14th of July 1989 was about the right to existence, which remained a powerful aspiration. The 1989 resolution also demanded the abolition of the third world debt and the unfair trade policy. The resolution was sent to the G7. It was not even read. The shift was already underway. The third world had no place in the new world. And in November 9, it was the fall of the Berlin Wall. All this created a convergence to deploy an attack on third world movement, anti-colonial theory, and revolutionary thought. Though the Iranian revolution and the fatwa against Rushdie had brought back to the forefront an orientalist discourse, it was not yet widely adopted. French feminists would see to it and provide vocabulary and argument. In October 1989, the French branch of the family planning published a text in which he denounced the veil as, I quote, a religious symbol, a sign of sexist discrimination and a symbol of submission. On November 2, 1989, French nationalist newspaper published a letter 
addressed to the Minister of French Education, who was a socialist, and was signed by Elisabeth Badinter, Régis Debray, Alain Ficorro, Elisabeth Deron, De Fontenay, and Catherine Kinsler, all people perceived as being on the left, in which they wrote that allowing young girls to be veiled in school meant, I quote, opening the door to all those who want to crush them into submission. By allowing the veil, the symbol of feminine submission, you are giving a blank check to their father and brother, that is, to the more brutal patriarchy in the world. On November 27, a meeting in support to the letter was called to the mutuality, entitled for the defense and laicite, for the defense of women, it was organized by feminists and organizations of the left. Among them, Gisela Limi, who had been a lawyer for Algerian journalists, the resistant Lucie Aubrac, the journalist Madeleine Chapsal, the pre-writer Ariane Mouchkine, feminist activists, and the League of Women's Rights, which had been created by Simone de Beauvoir a few years back. All this was quite a very incredible moment. And as I say, these feminists felt that they were not heard. So all the end of 1989, it's open letter they sent to the minister, to the media, revealing, we are not prepared, we don't pay attention enough to the biggest threat that is happening. The government had not yet, you know, grasped the thing, and Europe has not yet grasped. This is a quote. The colonial administration defined a very precise political doctrine. If we want to destroy the structure of the Algerian society, its capacity for resistance, we must first of all conquer the women. We must go and find them behind the veil where they hide themselves and the house where the men keep them out of sight. Francois wrote about colonial policy in Algeria. He added, get the woman and all will follow. This policy was finally fully adopted by French feminists, who don't, I don't think they had Fanon, but who provided a vocabulary to the governmental assault on the veil and on Muslims who had, remember, the most brutal patriarchy in the world. Women from the right and the left found common ground. From both sides, declaration echoed what will soon become common sense. The fact that women, Muslim women, would be the agent of integration of the Muslim community, that Islam meant, I quote, forced marriage, female mobilization, 12-year-old girls under the cruel law of father and brother. So the father and brother, was, there was never mother in this story. Patriarchy was very, again, rationalized very clearly, and the father and brother were very clear, clearly identified as being the enemy, and the poor girl effectively being uh, oppressed by the most brutal patriarchy in the world. What emerged that year and would be widely deployed afterwards, leading in the mid-20s to laws against the veil and discrimination against Muslims, is what I call civilizing feminism, rather than white or Western or mainstream feminism. Because I think it borrows from the 19th century civilizing mission the following ideas. The divide between universal modern science and local knowledge reflecting a wider division between society view and an object for history and society view as an object for ethnography, between society that make their own history and passive society to which history simply arrive, between progressive society and static society. The discourse of women's rights offered argument to neoliberalism and imperialism, which were more difficult to contest than bringing, you know, the question of progress, scientific progress, or industrial progress, because the latter was already very widely criticized in the 1980s already by sociologists, geographers, and everything. Who could be for forced marriage, female mutilation, lack of sexual freedom, and brutal patriarchy? 
If civilizing feminism was not new, it has been there during the colonial time, it benefited in the 1980s of the full support of international institutions, the movie industry, the publishing industry, US Foundation, Women Magazine, TV series, NGO, World Bank, IMF, Economic Journal. By the early 1990s, the World Bank advocated microcredit for women of the global south because women were budget-wise more serious than men. There was all discourse about the seriousness of women. The expression empowerment, girls' power, capacity building, women, leadership became hegemonic just when the feminization of poverty was denounced. An NGO, we know, played an important role in that dissemination of vocabulary. Last March, uh, I was in Assam and Nagaland uh, to meet uh, with women from tribes, and uh, you know that Nagaland has been under army emergency laws for rule for a while. There was 100 women, and they started to talk. I mean, we asked them, so it was a workshop on feminism, and uh, we asked them to present themselves and what they were doing, and they were speaking, I mean, NGO was speaking through them. They were capacity building, women leadership. It was incredible. I was with a friend for uh, a friend of for me from India, and we wonder how we're going to tell them. You know, we cannot tell them because they were doing an incredible job. You know, holding the community like that. You know, and we couldn't say you know speaking crap. So we are wondering. But I thought about this question of care, and I told them. I tried to say, okay, this is fantastic what you're doing, but what if we were spending some time in who, who broke it? Who, who caused the breaking of your community? Who is responsible? You know, could we just like work on that for a while? And by the first afternoon, it was already the NGO vocabulary had been forgotten, but it has been very strong. Very strong, and it was incredible. But it's also the economy, uh, financing economy. They don't get money if they don't speak like that. This is how you know they get uh, you know, money for their association. It's really a whole imperialism. I mean, this form of imperialism is, is going through, even through effectively going and women's rights. You know, and this woman was saying, but we don't want to be separated from our the men of our community. They saw them as victims. There was a lot of trafficking, drugs, and, and rape, and police violence, and murder. And so we worked through that because they were, they, the, the NGO were encouraging them to see just women's equality, gender equality, not women, gender equality. And it was, the term of gender equality did not mean anything, in fact, in this, most of this community. So it was, a, it was quite interesting to see that. Civilizing feminism found in Islam their, its enemy, and Islamophobia was its ideology. To Sarah Faris' analysis of feminism as a point of convergence between feminism, far-right, and neoliberal, I would like to suggest that civilizing mission was also a strategy of survival for feminists in the global north, a way to regain power, to secure position in institutions, to be recognized and invited, and to be paid and financed, and whose opinion now mattered. As I say, feminists from the left brought a strong contribution to that ideology. But by the mid 2000s already, there was some reaction to this civilizing feminist, as we see in the reaction to the declaration of German feminist Alice Strasser, who, you know, following incident in Cologne in December 2015, had declared that anti-racism had become more important than anti-sexism, and that Muslim men, all of them apparently, enjoy humiliating women. That was, you know, something. And, and so, so there was all the declaration. And 
it was interesting by, already by the 2012, 2014, a counteroffensive were developing. We will need to renew the effort, uh, you know, to effectively to say what is that? This is absolutely racism, which led again to uh, an effort to demean anti-colonial struggle and to attack what is not known today as decolonial thought. There was an incredible offensive in France in the institution, the university against decolonial thought in Germany also at the moment. I mean, petition in the newspaper to say this should not be in the university, threaten the university. So this move towards civilizing feminism in the late 1980s and its development, you know, as we know, we remember the declaration of Madame Bush uh, Jr., you know, in 2011, when she said that the 9-11 had revealed the situation of Afghan women. And this is why the U.S. Army had a duty to intervene. She said like that. Obscure also at the same time the social and economic transformation that took place at the beginning of the 21st century, and that women demonstration in the global south today and strike have revealed a further reorganization of labor worldwide that effectively touched women. So both Islamophobia and the focus of gender equality, we are masking that growing phenomenon, the new spatial division in the world, the new reorganization and the new division between what is clean and what is dirty and who is charged of making things clean and the place and role of women in the cleaning, caring industry. So who is cleaning the world? As I have seen in my introduction, the place given at the beginning of 2018 to the letter defending a freedom to bother are as indispensable to sexual freedom and the marginalization of the victory of hundreds of black and bold women led me to understand better not so much discrepancy which was not really surprising, but the role of racialized women in the cleaning, carrying and making the world clean. I have read, like many of you, you know, the revolutionary theory of domestic work, the Paris Commune, where, you know, the kind of solution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the anarchists, you know, I've looked at that. New proposal for collective kitchen, collective childcare, domestic salary. I had also read Black Feminist on the link between domestic work and blackness, domestic work and slavery, and also domestic work and colonialism. But what interested me here was the link between capitalism as producer of West, as also treating human as West, and the place of women of color in the cleaning caring industry, and the fact that it's necessary work has to be invisible. Absolutely. Invisible because even when it does not open light at night or in the early morning, these women are made invisible. We see them, but we don't see them in the railway station, in the airport, with their broom. You know, they are made even when they are there. I have noticed their shadowy presence in public spaces, such as airport, railway station, malls, hospital. And though I know that men are also in the cleaning business, you know, nuclear facility, digital waste, trade cleaning, data show that worldwide women constitute the majority of this workforce, even though most of the time public opinion still think that cleaning is a domestic activity at home. Capitalism, I say, is a producer of waste. According to the World Bank, one billion, three million tons of, of waste are produced per year, or 11 million per day. For capitalism to function, its space must be clean every day. Bank, insurance, mall, office, plane, train have to be clean. Every morning, the bankers, the insurers, the employees of digital companies, the surgeon, the lawyer must find a clean space, clean meeting room, clean toilet, and clean restaurant. It remains, as I say, worldwide a feminine job. One migrant woman out of four is working in the cleaning industry. 
What is interesting also is how the neoliberals are seeing the future. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the forthcoming workforce should be organized as such. On the one hand, developing jobs reserved to men in the oil industry, in mathematics, in digital program, technician for the new energy industry, you know, the solar industry, and those who are reserved for women. Domestic help, caring for the elderly, cleaning, nurse, medical assistant, massage therapy. And the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics forces the existence in 2026 of 4 million domestic care workers in the U.S. alone. Women who work in the cleaning industry are usually in their 40s, 50s, so they are, you know, being mothers and so on. Work in the cleaning industry is also very dangerous for the earth, chemical industry and also musculoskeletal. Sexual violence is pervasive, and violence is not a result of masculine nature. It is structural to the cleaning industry. The cleaning industry is also an industry of exhaustion of the body. Women, all, all the women tell, if you, you read interviews, whether in Europe, Africa, or Asia, they tell of being exhausted. Usually they live far away from the place they have to clean. They do hours of public transport, which they must pay, and whose time is never included in their pay. When they do the morning cleaning, they wake up at 3 or 4 a.m., they carry a heavy garbage bag, they go up and down a staircase. When they do the evening, they go home late. Most of them, you know, when you read the testimony, they say they have just three to four hours sleep every night. And they have often to do two, three, four jobs to earn a decent wage. So I was interested in this exhaustion, this economy of exhaustion on the body. The fact that it's not just because they carry heavy garbage, it's organized so that they are exhausted. They don't sleep a lot. And it made me think a lot about the sleep, the, the relation between neoliberalism and sleep. And there was this book on 7 7 24, 24 about yeah, even when we dream, we don't consume. So that's, uh, I mean, neoliberalism is losing a moment, you know, of selling us something. But beside that, I do think that the question of exhausting the body, which effectively are back to slavery, is something absolutely inseparable so from that organization of labor that you have also, because exhausting the body is also demeaning, humiliation is also fatally subhuman, treating someone not as a human being. Cleaning was industrialized following the increasing, at the beginning, it was industrialized at the end of 19th century, but it really took off with increasing demand of cleaning offices everywhere in the world. This is the first client of the cleaning industry, and we know that, you know, the thousands and thousands of square meters of offices that we see everywhere in all the city with the emergence of neoliberalism. And it produced also, I want to argue, a clearer division of cleanliness, dirtiness, quite visible in the city. The clean neighborhood for the middle class, with space of work and leisure, the garden, the clean garden, the green spaces, and the dirty neighborhood for the other, with, you know, polluted hair, polluted water, no green space, no comfortable spaces for leisure. So gentrification accentuates also this dirty, clean, and what is dirty and what is clean, and who is doing the cleaning and what. So So this new question around cleaning, caring, so I think bring together gender, race, organization of legal, illegal migration, clean, dirty, chemical industry, invisibilization, sexual violence, exploitation. And thus, this is why I think it offers an important terrain for analysis of racial capitalism, which brings, as Ruthie Wilson Gilmore has argued, a greater vulnerability to death. It represents for decolonial feminism, which is for me, as I say, radically anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, 
a terror struggle and of renewing the analysis on cleaning caring. In away from this question of domestic salary, again, how, you know, this is organizing. In March 2018, I saw in Chennai a show called Labor Worker of the World Relax, curated by a young Dalit woman, Krishna Priya CP. She wrote, Labour itself has to be looked at critically, beyond what was in the Western anthropological representation of colonial photo archive and in the valorized post-independence <coughs> representation. The show was, she said, a call for collective responsibility. Among the work being shown, I was interested with a Syrian woman who cleans the Shanghai railway station and with three pages that were close by on which a young Dalit has written, with a picture taken by the young Dalit artist, and this is a portrait of the woman who cleaned the railway station. So I was interested in that. They are all also in their 40s, 50s, and Dalit. So these are the, the pages, and I want to read uh, some excerpts because that older woman that you speak about, does that the three pages that we saw, they wish were, who cleaned human faces, I write taking her to be one of my family, my grandfather. Cleaning faces is not an ordinary thing. For this, you require medical studies like MBBS. With Berhan, my grandfather cleaned human faces. That he did, to such an extent that it is soaked in the line of his hands, soaked like blood in blood. In the night, with the same hands, he would feed my father. With the same hand, he himself would hit. With all this, getting habituated to it, because of that, my father also had no hesitation in cleaning faces. My father also did the faces cleaning. In my view, more than honoring that woman who cleaned faces, I think we should show that, like everyone, she's equal. When that woman should stop cleaning faces, everyone should clean their own faces themselves. Two, or else, we should all join with the woman and clean human faces like that. Though doing this way, that woman couldn't be one of us as equal, not only by saying it by words of mouth, but by feeling it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a very powerful critique, I think, of the failure of French feminism that you offer us, the blindness, the racial blindness, the blindness to class, the self-indulgence in a way that you picture of self-indulgence and of kind of introspection and of a kind of callousness. And of course, the circular story that you tell ending at the end with this image of the person who cleans his own feces and cleans the feces of his father and your plea at the end that everybody should clean their own feces is quite an interesting way of wrapping that. So I wondered whether I could just draw you out a little bit more about how you read the failure of feminism in Europe, in France in particular, because that's what you're talking about, to actually take account of questions of class and questions of race, which are actually underpinning your argument throughout. And I'm interested to know what kind of reception your work gets, therefore, within the context in which you live and, and you inhabit in France. I mean, how is the work received in relation to this very, very pointed critique of French feminism and its blind spots? Could you say a little bit more about Ooh. that? Well, that's easy. I'm totally ignored. <laughs> okay. So that's totally easy. 
I, I don't teach in a French institution. I would never be teaching in a French institution. And I'm being ignored. So my work is never, you know, the, the importance it, of citation. My, my work is never... And what about but, but I work a lot with young activists. But in terms of the reception of your books, which have such a, you know, your, your work is known certainly in the Anglophone Academy and has had a powerful influence on people within the Anglophone Academy. So do you feel that there is no context within the Francophone Academy to academy, the reception? Academy, I don't think. But in the French, uh, Franco, I mean, in the Francophone world, yes. I mean, the, the book on the, the, the Black Woman's Womb, I was invited by a lot of uh, association of uh, Afro-feminists, Muslim feminists, also, you know, of France in a small uh, city or for quite a lot. And, and the forthcoming book, I already, you know, a lot of them want me to come. So that's no problem. That's absolutely, there is a lot of discussion and a lot of students come to me to get advice of how to do that work or to, how to do research. You know, for instance, you could, you could have a big conference on the memory of slavery and I nonetheless work quite a lot on that, and I would not be invited. If it's a, an academic conference, I would not be invited. So that's the way. Um, yeah. So I'm invited here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Or elsewhere in Africa, or Asia, or the, the state. But in France, I'm invited by activist group or by uh, union. And in relation then to your tension with French feminists, so who are also to a large extent marginalized in relation to the academy. So if one looks at the way in which in conventional disciplines, whether it's in literature, in art history, my own field, the visibility of French feminist theorists within those kinds of academic institutions is minimal, to say the least. So given the precarity of French feminist work within the academy, notwithstanding its incredible importance for those of us around the world who've read it over the decades, do you think that your critique of French feminism then puts you at a kind of, you know, you're critiquing something that's already precarious in terms of the French establishment. And it's a very stringent critique that you're making because you're arguing that French feminism is functioning really as apologists. French feminists are, are, are functioning they're providing the discourses of Islamophobia and their particular critique of the way in which Muslim women are perceived has then become used by political establishments, by the right. But not all of them, not all French feminists. I mean, some of them, and they were important because they had names, they, could, they had access to media, they led the way, but not all of them. I mean, Christine Delphi has written again that very clearly. She had defended, you know, women, veiled women. And all that. But civilizing feminism as a strong as influence, a strand, uh, yes, as a strong. Not necessarily that the it's an ideology. So it, it's not being only women who will talk about that, but even you know men professors at the university will say things like that. It's also very clear in the world of art and culture, as we were discussing before. If this civilizing ideology is quite strong, very strong. I mean, with the the, the fact that if a, a young uh, Black or woman, you know, Arab woman coming with a project, it's always being said, oh, this is going to be emotional. Yeah. You know, it's going to be emotional. You won't be able to talk about that. Yeah. Try to find something, you know. So, against always the emotion on that side. So, it's pervasive. Yeah. It's not, I mean, we know Elizabeth Bonneterre, although these are clearly those mm. who will speak loudly and all that and today also. A lot of other women, you do have also some in the university. One art historian, especially, who teach at Paris 7, who is up against the colonial. That ideology is present. 
in the university or in the museum or in the world of art. But it's interesting the way in which a certain political establishment has been able to co-opt a certain kind of feminist discourse for its own ends. I mean, in the debates around the veil, as you mentioned, or in the debates around the burkini or whatever it was, people who've never known to be, never been known to be protagonists of women's rights have used a feminist discourse in order to reject a very particular monocultural anti-Islamic agenda. <coughs> One hasn't heard such a big outcry from feminists against that. I mean, where were all the feminists wearing bikinis on the beaches of uh, uh, Cannes or whatever in collaboration with and solidarity with the Islamic sisters who weren't allowed to go to the beach? I mean, every... We didn't see that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, what I was really interested in is like how it was feminist, (coughs) some feminists, not all of them, who provided that vocabulary. That's right, yeah. It's furnished this discourse. Really, because... At the beginning, men, they don't quite know what to say, but they provided through the question of women's rights and women oppression and women's submission. And this was like so good, so good, you know. And the bikini, burkini things is like every summer. It's like an every summer thing. It's like coming back constantly. But with uh, last summer, it was about a woman in Algeria who wanted to wear bikini on the beach, but men were attacking them. It was on the French press on newspaper every day in France, you know, and it was a battle of the bikini in Algeria, battle for rights, for women's rights and women's freedom, arcing back to women who had fought during the liberation movement. It was like, finally, it ended up to be a totally fake news that no woman had been, you know, like uh, fighting to go. But it occupied in the meantime, women in Morocco were in the street marching to support the social movement in the reef. And this was not in the newspaper. It was very important to show constantly that women in the Muslim world are constantly attacked. So, you know, but when they are outside in the street for a social movement in the reef against the monarchy, there was nothing. So you, you started your talk with the account of the selectiveness of media reportage. So the one at the moment that Catherine Deneuve's letter became big, big news because of her critique of the Me Too moment. That gets huge amount of exposure, whereas, as you were saying, the women who were cleaning the Gare du Nord, mm. I think it was, got very little exposure at all. So there's the way in which these things are weaponized, which is very interesting. Now, tell us a little bit about what you think that's symptomatic of and how you characterize that. But, I mean, perhaps also because we're caught in this question of social network and so on. It lasted for a month, this letter, and everyone was caught into it. You know, even like young radical feminists had to say something. About Catherine Deneuve's letter. Mm. I mean, with, you know, like there was something going on on Twitter. When was the last time she has taken the subway? It was in Truffaut movie, the last metro. It was like, who cares? You know, so it was, I was interested, kind of like... You know, like absorption by these things. Like even, you know, I was saying, I say, we should not answer. We should not answer. Let them see that if they want to be bothered. I mean, if they want, if for them it's, it's important to be bothered by men in public space. Should we say something? What is it? Is it does it have, I mean, what is it? And so I was interested, yes, because... Uh, I mean, recently there was also, it's what we were trying to discuss, you know, this kind of caught into some kind of narcissistic moment when uh, you have to answer to something, you know, like uh, you should not answer to. And so I'm thinking, you know, political education is like to teach when 
you should not pay attention to things, you know, that they are moment. You, there are a lot of things you should not pay attention to. You're losing your energy, you know, you should drop it. So this, this Deneuve thing, why was that? Because I think, why well, it was Catherine Deneuve. I something to do. There is also in the left, I mean, there is always, you know, vis-a-vis the United States. United States is always either the bad or the good object, if you want to talk mm-hmm. with you that vocabulary. For the French intelligence, it matters a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, UK does not exist, I'm sorry to say. Mm-hmm. But US, yes. It's really the other, the one that we don't do things like that. Here we love men to open the door to us and to flirt with us. Over there is political correctness. Or, on the other ways, over there they are much more advanced in terms of feminist theory and postcolonial theory. So it's a constant back and forth and not looking at why it's happening this way in France. Why it's happening this way in France? Why, why the colonial racial past it triggers so much, you know, reaction for by even people on the radical left? Why that? And it's not the U.S. who's going to tell us why. It's not by looking at the U.S. that we're going to learn what is happening. Why is that? Why Islamophobia has been so strong? Why? A lot of this, uh, you know, vocabulary came from the French feminism. Because when Alice Chazer speaks, I mean, she just, you know, echoes what... Uh, this question of patriarchy, the father and brother, has been also a very important narrative. I was very interested in that. Because men came to France as single, right? To construct the road and everything. And there was a lot of, I mean... And it was in the mid-70s that they were able to bring their family So, in fact, they were totally victimized by uh, separated from their family, could not go back. A lot of them, for instance, who are retired today, cannot go back because they will not get their pension. So, they live by themselves alone. They are 80 years old. So, in fact, they've been victimized, but they were transformed into, it was very important to transform them into, in fact, those who were threatened. Even, for instance, when you have anti-black racism, at one point, Islam will happen, will arrive, you know, by, by the window. Like, even it has to be there constantly. So I was interested in that moment. And this is why I was interested in 89. And I thought that it was also some kind of convergence of a lot of ideological moment, you know, in that moment, Iranian revolution, which scared people, the fall of the Berlin Wall, which was oh, at the end of history. And the 14th of July moment, which was really a moment of uh, François Furet against, uh, and of the planetary tribe of happy globalization. Mm-hmm. It was not there in the 70s, even though in the 70s they were always to say that uh, in Algeria women are back in the kitchen, you know, have been, have been sent back in the kitchen. But in the 80s, this fact that the anti-colonial movement had not been good became really disseminated, mm-hmm. like a critic even from the left, mm-hmm. and especially from those who are supported national liberation movement. So giving, as I say, more strength to that. Because if they had come from the right, people would have said, well, of course, we are not surprised. But it came from that. Mm-hmm. So decolonization had been bad, revolution had been bad, and feminists contributed to that by offering the question of women's rights which was then, because the question of dictatorship and so on, 
could be tricky because you could find some in Europe also, you know, the Franco dictatorship. So, but that Romance White was like so good, you know, as a card, you know, like a master card in the game. I have been interested in the way in which it fits in. And as I say, in the current movement of incredible backlash, you have two forms of patriarchy, you know, the vulgar one, the clearly homophobic. Okay, let's not even say their name. They got a bunch of them around the world. And then you have the soft one, the one who married a woman older than, than him, who opened the door, who talk about women's rights. But both of them do not challenge capitalism or imperialism. They all support neoliberalism in different ways. And in both cases, women will be victims. Women targeted women were at work, women doing the work, but one will be softer and the other one will be more brutal. But in terms of the policies, politics for me the same. It's interesting to think about the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case as a case in America, which actually completely embodies this, and that you have the powerful male figure to whom Catherine Deneuve wants us to defer because he's gallant and knows how to open a door, and then you have the impoverished domestic worker of colour yeah. whose body he thinks he can use, and it yeah. becomes a sort of very interesting sort of playing out of some of the themes that you're addressing and the, the image of the domestic worker, the care worker, the person who is responsible for cleaning the ship basically, which is the way you ended it. It was a topos in a way of this particular power relationship that you're describing. Yeah, I mean the, the cleaning of the world, I mean because I was like so struck by the fact that there was no functioning of the world if it's not clean every day. Yeah. This room, I mean, anything, any place we go every and day. And the invisibility of it, which and is the how you started, of the story, you started it. It's a it. huge work. Yeah. It's huge. It's every day, everywhere. It's huge. And for me, cleaning is about caring also. Mm-hmm. I don't distinguish them too much because mm-hmm. cleaning is caring about a place. And so we can enter that place and we can perform whatever we perform. We can and do so, our intellectual labor because somebody else has cleaned the floor. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I want us to pay attention to that because it's a very north-south divide also, or in Europe also it'd be east-west, but it's this peripherization and this need. And it's growing because there is a growing middle class in the world, so you see that in, in Asia also, in Africa as well. It's worldwide. Thank you so much. I'm afraid we're going to have to draw together. It's been really wonderful and thrilling to listen to you and to talk with you, and we appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your own podcast app by searching British Academy. And to find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit britishacademy.ac.uk.